0: Luke chapter 19. I think I'm right to say that most mothers are skilled at search and rescue missions. A shoe or clothes item is misplaced. Who's going to find it? An important game piece is missing. The dog gets loose. Something cannot be located in the refrigerator. Moms are experts at fixing these kinds of problems. How many times in a mother's career do the words, mom I can't find, precede essentially a 911 call for mom to start another search and rescue mission? When raising children, you spend a fair amount of time seeking and finding what was lost. It gets a lot more serious, of course, when the thing that is lost is actually the child. You've probably witnessed one or more of those excruciating situations when a parent stands before a microphone and a rolling camera and begs the public for help in finding a lost or missing child. That's a hard scene to see. Not long ago, photo, photo journalists relayed the story of a father and son walking ditches on a remote stretch of highway looking for clues to the disappearance of their daughter and sister hard to see. And then there are those times when a child is lost in a very different sense of the word. There is, for instance, the search and rescue mission of the mom who heads to the big city on a Saturday night to look for her wayward daughter on a street corner. Or the search and rescue mission of the parents longing to see the car of their estranged son turn into the driveway and take Yet another take this first offer in such a long time of a dinner invitation. If we can bring ourselves into these scenes and just grasp something of the intensity and the yearning that fills the heart of a parent who is seeking a lost child, we begin to understand what makes Jesus tick. Jesus repeatedly pictured His mission on earth as a search-and-rescue mission for lost souls. Jesus did not see people as good and safe. He saw people as sinful and lost, as estranged from God. And He saw His mission as one of finding and saving lost souls. We've witnessed this emphasis in the parable of the lost son in Luke chapter 15 and we find again today witness of this truth in a real life situation that unfolds in a most dramatic way in the life of Christ remembering the context as we come back to Luke chapter 19 same context as we were in last week we remember that like Julius Caesar some eight decades earlier Jesus has crossed his Rubicon the die is cast He has crossed Jordan River. He is on his final journey upward to Jerusalem at Passover where he will give his life. The new Joshua has stepped foot on promised soil. And as with Joshua of old, Jesus circles, so to speak, the walls of Jericho, sending notice to death that her walls are about to come crumbling down. Jesus will not only die in Jerusalem, chapter 18, verses 31 and 32, but he will also rise from the dead, verse 33. As a final demonstration of Messiah's death defying mission, Jesus restores the sight of a blind man here at Jericho in verses 35 and following of the 18th chapter. You notice it there in your text. As we noted, there is a direct parallel between this blind man who realizes Jesus is the Messiah and realizes that he needs the mercy of God. There's a direct relationship between this man, this blind man, and the rich young ruler that comes earlier in the 18th chapter. This man does not receive Jesus as Messiah, but has a nebulous good teacher reference and does not see himself as in need of saving grace direct contrast between these two and we enter onto the scene now another man who also will contrast starkly with the rich ruler this man by name is Zacchaeus and ironically like the blind man he too cannot see Jesus as he enters Jericho verse 1 of chapter 19 we pick up his story here Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. For those that have been through this series of Luke, We know this drill quite well, don't we? We've seen an awful lot of tax collectors along the way. And we know that this means that this man was unscrupulous. He was a wretched sinner in Israel. And had you known such a man, you would have thought him very evil yourself. Tax collectors sold their soul to Rome for the right to tax their own people and to line their own wallets. And we need to understand that Jericho, in particular, was a lion's den of extortion. It was a regional tax center. And it was situated on a major trade route to Jerusalem. So if you can put yourself in the common person's place in this day, Zacchaeus is the guy who assures that as you come into town with your cart, you have to unload everything. And some small tax man, under Zacchaeus' thumb, rifles through all of your stuff and comes up with an arbitrary tax. Seldom was there a very specific tax on anything. They would just make the decision on the spot. And Zacchaeus runs this racket in town. He is the kingpin of the tax machine, as one has said. At Jericho, overseeing this racket, Jericho, this important tax center, Zacchaeus runs the show, and he is becoming very rich. And has become very rich in the process. Zacchaeus' soul had long been suffocating in the smog of depravity. But this day, Jesus enters town. And Zacchaeus wants to see him. Let's remember that as Jesus comes to town, he is heading up to Jerusalem. There is time yet before Passover, but along with these bands of pilgrims making their way, journeying their way up toward Jerusalem, Jesus is with one of these bands and he enters this town and will very clearly be spending the night here. And people are very excited to see this man. This great rabbi has come to our city, to Jericho. And people are gathered around. And so this tax collector, Zacchaeus, who is wealthy, is there. But we notice verse 3. He wanted to see Jesus, who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. He wanted to see who Jesus was. Just the way, how does that ring? It it just kind of comes across in that phrase, in the Greek as well, he really is just curious about seeing Jesus. He wants to see who he is. He does not necessarily want to hear his teaching. Perhaps a miracle or two would really make life exciting. But he wants to just know who Jesus is. He's heard much about this great rabbi in Israel. Who is this man? He has a problem, of course, and that's that he's built too close to the ground. He just isn't able to see over the press of the crowd and to see who Jesus to to get a look at him. I'm sure that there's nobody in Jericho who's particularly bent toward helping him see either and, and ushering him to the front stage. And so Zacchaeus finds himself the odd man out, as it were, standing at the back of the crowd trying to see, unable to do so because of his stature. Well, verse 4 says tells us what he does about it. He ran ahead, he climbed a sycamore, a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. He clearly calculates the timing and the direction of Jesus' route. He runs ahead of the crowd to this tree that is along the path. He scrambles up into the branches of the tree, finds a favorable place, and waits. I don't know about you, but that doesn't strike me as particularly dignified for a tax collector. A man of great wealth in the town of Jericho. It seems that he really doesn't care what anybody thinks. He wants to get a good look at the best show in town. That's Jesus, and so he climbs this tree and waits for Jesus to come. I think Zacchaeus very likely, this is reading into the text a bit, but I think very likely Zacchaeus had long quit caring what people thought about him. Because in this town, he was one hated man. He was one dirty crook. And to get to that place in life, you've gotta squash your conscience over and over again. Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, that's it. He really doesn't care what anyone else thinks. Can you get a picture of this scene? I mean, it's, it's almost comical, it's almost heartwarming. I don't know what to make of it, but here's this man with great wealth, hanging in this tree, sitting in a limb, waiting for Jesus to pass underneath. It's quite a scene. Well, verse 5, we find it's not only Zacchaeus seeking Jesus, but Jesus seeking Zacchaeus. Verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Apparently Jesus has asked someone Zacchaeus' name or perhaps there's some conversation that precedes and he finds out that this is his name. Whatever the case, he calls him by name, looks at him and asks him to come down very quickly. And verse 6, that's exactly what Zacchaeus does. He came down at once and welcomed him gladly. You see him scrambling down the tree quickly and landing with a thud at Jesus' feet. And then looking up into his face and saying something along the lines of, Certainly, Jesus, you may come to my house. My house is over in this direction. Would you please follow me, Zacchaeus? We find, or Jesus rather, we find here, there's no, are you sure you know who I am? Are you sure you want to come to my house? There's no cold, calculated sophistication here on Zacchaeus' part. He just simply says, my house is in this direction. Please follow me. Now, it's interesting, but pretty soon that's exactly what Jesus is going to be doing and saying, my house is in this direction. Come and follow me. Zacchaeus rejoices with simple childlike enthusiasm. Think back to chapter 18. And verses 15 through 18, or that that section there, particularly 16 and 17. And childlike faith on the part of Zacchaeus. Now, there's really a third player in this whole scene. There's Jesus and there's Zacchaeus, but there's the crowd. And we notice the crowd's reaction to all of this in verse 7 of Luke 19. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. The crowd was very enthusiastic to hear Jesus preach. They were very excited to witness some of his kingdom power. Yet in an ominous note, just like that, they are willing to criticize Jesus for his response to this man. Zacchaeus is a bum. Jesus needs to know this. Can you believe it? This great rabbi of Israel is going to Zacchaeus's house. There are plenty of righteous people living in Jericho. Can't he find a better place than that? This is not right. We need to understand in the culture of that day that it was the teaching and the belief That if you ate with someone who was involved in a crime, you were essentially participating with them in their crime. Eating was an act of identification. And so as you ate with someone, particularly in a formal sense, being hosted by them in their home, Jesus was, in a sense, in their thinking, participating with this man in his sin. And let's admit that Jesus really does kind of walk the line here, doesn't he? The reason that Zacchaeus has these great digs is because he's a thief. And the reason that Zacchaeus is able to feed Jesus in this way is because he's a thief. And Jesus is participating in this wealth with Zacchaeus. What these people want, however, is wrong. And what Jesus wants is right. What these people want is a Jesus of their their own making. A Jesus who makes them feel good about themselves and makes everyone they don't like feel very bad about themselves. Jesus isn't done yet. Yes, he's going to eat with a sinner. But what they do not understand is that he has more to do They saw nothing but a hopeless, godless, worthless, total sinner. You know what Jesus saw? Exactly the same thing. A worthless, godless, lost man. The difference is the crowd would have been quite willing to boot Zacchaeus right into hell. Jesus sees that same man and he goes on a rescue mission. He has a heart to conquer. He has a soul to save, not to condemn. So Jesus is thinking outside the box that limited the crowd's thinking. Jesus is not on a mission to identify with Zacchaeus' sin, And there are people who take passages such as this to excuse their identification with wrongdoing as they say that they're seeking to reach people. I don't think that's a proper application of this text. Jesus is not here to identify with Zacchaeus' sin. He's not spending this meal talking to him about how it is that he lifts so much money from people, curious to hear how he does it. Jesus is here on a mission to transform a thief into a giver. Now, there's probably a considerable amount of detail that is lacking between verses 7 and 8. We don't really know what takes place there. The scene is not drawn out for us. It is my assumption, and it's only an assumption, that verse 7 is the people muttering. In fact, I think the Greek text would probably better be translated just that they continued to gripe and complain. And I think this griping and complaining not only just began when Jesus called Zacchaeus, but continued as Jesus came to Zacchaeus's house knowing the setting and the culture my assumption is that Zacchaeus brings Jesus to his home for a formal meal there are probably then people who are standing around the table that low-lying table as Jesus reclines with Zacchaeus there they're standing around the table watching the rabbi eat and listening to what he has to say remember this is Passover and this is a public meal and I think it's, or at least in Zacchaeus's home, he could have housed that. I think it's very probable that this is such a meal. And Jesus then begins to speak. And as he speaks with Zacchaeus, the crowd is there grumbling as they watch. And something's happening in Zacchaeus's heart as Jesus speaks. There's so much here we don't know and we can't see. But somehow, verse 8, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord. He stood up, so it's clearly not as he's standing. I mean, I don't think we get the picture that he's fallen down as he dropped out of the tree. And he's been listening to all of Jesus' conversation on on the ground. I think the point is something's happened, and he has been reclining or sitting, and now he stands up. And what does he say? Notice this. This is profound. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here I now give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. That's profound. Let me ask you if it could be known that Jesus was waiting at your house today, and when you went home from church, He was going to ask you to give away half of your wealth. How many of you would go home? would I. This man just got poor all of a sudden. He just gave away half of his wealth. How many people do you think he's extorted in the town of Jericho? And he says, I will give four times back whatever I've taken. That's after I get rid of half of my wealth. This is a man who has lived his life lifting money from people. And now he's a giver. We don't know what Jesus said. All we know is he lit a fire in Zacchaeus' soul. Edersheim says, In that moment Zacchaeus saw it all. What his past had been, what his present was, and what his future must be. Do you remember Jesus calling the rich ruler to himself? What did he call him to do? give everything. Sell it all. He wouldn't do it. You see, Jesus doesn't ask Zacchaeus to give it all because he doesn't need to. The man is repentant. The point isn't giving all of your money as such. The point is being willing to do whatever Jesus tells you to do, including giving all of your money. Jesus doesn't call him to that. This man has reduced his income by well over half. His, his earnings, his, his holdings, because of the teaching of Jesus. It is a full repentance that is evidenced by a willingness to make full restitution for his wrongdoing. A thief who turned himself in under the law was to give back everything he'd taken and to add 20 percent to it. It was only the most violent thief who is caught in armed robbery essentially who would be charged four times what he owed. Or what he had taken. So Zacchaeus places upon himself the ultimate penalty of the law, assuming that he is the worst of thieves. He will make that repayment in repentance. The darkened heart of a chief tax collector had just been flooded with light. And Jesus says as much, beginning at verse 9. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Now wait a minute. If we're listening, we're hearing, we're putting this in context, that is not supposed to happen. Right? Chapter 18, verses 24 and 25. Jesus said it is harder for a rich man to to enter heaven than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Well, folks, a camel just passed through the eye of a needle. God had worked the impossible. This man's dead soul had come to life. The point is not that Zacchaeus had earned his salvation by repenting. Rather, his repentance was evidence of genuine salvation. Get this. We need to get this. We need to understand this theology which is fleshed out far more fully in the remainder of the New Testament. But the evidence that a person has been saved is not merely a confession of faith. The evidence that a person has been saved is not some dramatic experience somewhere. The evidence that a person has been saved is not that you are enamored with Jesus. You find His teachings interesting and appealing and you'd really like to get to know Him if He were here. That is not evidence of genuine conversion. Genuine conversion is heartfelt repentance and a transformed life. Repentance. It means simply an acknowledgement of sin. I own my sin for those that cannot say I am lost I am in need of salvation there is no Savior because you're not lost in your own mind Jesus is not going to find someone who doesn't see themselves as lost There needs to be an acknowledgement, and that's what repentance is, I think, at heart, is I am a sinner, and it is a turn from that condition to salvation. There is repentance followed, then, by transformation, a life that desires to do what is right. There's a good word for our times from an earlier age, a time of great upheaval, and difficulty. A man of unusual theology and sometimes strange ideas, but he said it well here, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who speaking of cheap grace said, cheap grace amounts to the justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner who departs from sin and from whom sin departs. Repentance is not a work by which we gain the salvation of God. But repentance, knowing our sin and turning from it, is the way that we embrace the salvation that Christ offers. A salvation that does not lead to transformation is really a misnomer. The rich man had trusted Christ to a degree He believed Jesus was a good teacher, and he was willing to hear what he said, but he was not willing to repent of his own sin and to follow Christ. This man, Zacchaeus, is willing. If it's as hard or harder for a rich man to enter heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, we can know that God did an amazing work this day. He opened the heart of one who was blind and helped him to see the simple truth. I am lost. I need Jesus. I long for Jesus to save me from my sin. This man, says Jesus, is a son of Abraham. His profession had put Zacchaeus outside the circle of Israel. Jesus insisted he was inside. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, was indeed a true son of Abraham by faith. And so Jesus summarizes His own work on this search and rescue mission having come to earth when He says in verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. At first it appeared that Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus we come to find out in the end that Jesus was in fact seeking Zacchaeus and is that not also the way that salvation works as we come to respond to saving faith in Jesus all we know is we're searching for him and I see the eyes of some of you here and know that you you remember that day I'm searching him I'm looking for him I'm seeking him out as you test the truths of the Scriptures, as you reason through them and consider Jesus Christ. You remember these days. And then what happens? As we come to faith in Jesus Christ, to trust the Gospel, and He gives us salvation, we come to understand little by little, you know what? In fact, all along, He was seeking me. And what a glorious truth that is to come to that place and realize that all along, He was seeking me. Think of all that Zacchaeus has done. He's figured things out here with this movement of this group of people around Jesus. He's climbed a tree to get to see him, but could Zacchaeus ever pull it off to have Jesus eat with him that day? Not at all. Zacchaeus was sought by Jesus. And anyone who comes to saving faith in Christ through maturity will come to understand that very point, that it's God who seeks us. And the fact that we are seeking him is simply an evidence that he is drawing us to the light and that he is chasing us down. I want to go to your house today, Zacchaeus. That's a bold invitation, a self-invitation. Zacchaeus. Is enthused and so is everyone whom Jesus calls come to my house it leads to his transformation God had done the impossible a professional thief had become a liberal giver it's impossible but God specializes in working the impossible it is that very kind of transaction that drove the heart of Jesus and ought to drive our heart To seek out that which was lost and to win it for God. Some interpreters claim that Luke chapter 19 and verse 10 is the theme verse of Luke. That could be argued, but certainly it is a powerful statement of the ministry and life mission of Jesus Christ. We live in a world of lost souls, souls estranged from God, souls in need of people willing to take on a search-and-rescue mission. That was Jesus. The question is, is that us? Are we search-and-rescue kind of people when it comes to lost souls? I ask you the question, have you actively joined Jesus on His search-and-rescue mission way of life? I ask us as a church, are we a church that welcomes sinners and rejoices in the mission to illumine, darken souls with the gospel? Do we embrace such individuals? Are we thrilled with the process of bringing the truth of the gospel to the lost? They don't act like us. They don't live like us by God's grace. But by God's grace may we reach out and hold out the hope of the gospel. We need to be set on notice, all of us, that there is no place in Eden Baptist Church for the attitude displayed by this crowd. There's no place for that. Now it is wrong, I think, for us to befriend, to come into the company of sinners in such a way that we simply participate with their way of life. But let it be said that those who befriend sinners to seek out the lost and to win them are the heroes of God's harvest. Never should we be found among the complaining crowd when somebody is reaching out to a lost soul. Jesus was a rescuer of the lost. That means you have to talk to the lost. You have to talk to them, you have to know them, you have to interact with them and you have to relate to them in a saving manner. That is to relate to them so that you turn the lights on to the truth of the gospel of Christ. We're not living a search and rescue life if we are not shedding light on the gospel with unbelievers. get weak knees right about there? It's a little scary sometimes, isn't it? How do we do it? How do we relate? How can we draw the lost saving light? Now there's no one way, there's no perfect way. But I'll tell you one way that never works is for us to just sit on our hands and bite our tongues and say nothing while we grumble at a lost world and the way it lives. We need to meet people and reach out to them and rescue them by God's grace. And I may speak to someone here this morning. You're in need of transformation. You know it. Perhaps no one around you knows it, but you know it. As you look in the mirror, you see a person who needs to be changed. Here's the wonderful truth that we've sung earlier and seen in this passage. Jesus stands there with open arms. He welcomes you to himself. Now, if you want to hold on to all of your sin, and you want to come to meet Jesus in such a way that you can continue on as a sinner doing all the things that you're doing, you're really not seeing who Jesus is here. I'm not saying that you've got to make your life right. In fact, you can't. We sang that also earlier this morning, didn't we? It's not getting everything in order in your religious life and then coming to follow Jesus as if it's all a transformation from within. Not at all. But if you come to Jesus clinging on to everything that you have and clinging on to your sin, then you're like a lot of dead Christians. They're populating churches this day, thinking they're pretty good, and they just go to church to get a little help to get to heaven. You need, like Zacchaeus, to realize there is nothing in you that can get you to heaven. And there is no sin that's worth holding. And in fact, if Jesus asked you to give up anything, you need to know that's who he is. And you need to simply come to Him and trust Him as your Savior. Jesus Christ will make it to Jerusalem in the text of Luke. And historically we know that He laid down His life, paying the penalty of your sin. He rose from the dead in victory over death, which is the penalty of sin. And He will give you His victory. And He will save you from your sin as you come and turn to Him. Are you in need of transformation? I've got very good news. That's why Jesus came. To transform people. If He can transform a professional thief on one evening into a liberal giver, He can transform you. He's in the business of getting camels to go through the eye of a needle. You're okay. You're okay not as you stand. You're okay as you come to him. Come in faith. He will meet you with open arms. And is there not great hope there? We look at Zacchaeus as a man filled with joy. He gladly received Jesus. And he enthusiastically changed his ways. He was a vile sinner that was transformed. He received Jesus with joy. If you've not received Christ by way of saving faith in his death and resurrection, there is only one thing that's awaiting you in his arms, and that is joy. Come to him today. Come, you sinners, we sang earlier today. Let me say, in behalf of Eden Baptist Church, we don't apologize for such hymns because they are at the heart and soul of our joy. To know we are sinful and fallen, to admit the obvious, but to know that in the arms of Christ we have been fully forgiven. That's joy. And that's why we sing with enthusiasm. Let's bow for prayer. Father, allow it to settle down. Allow it to settle over our souls, these great truths. We thank you for the joy of saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Give life and hope, I pray, to anyone who does not have that spiritual life now. Allow them to go home today singing that their sins have been forgiven. Bring them out of the darkness of sin. For those of us who know what Zacchaeus was experiencing, may we sing with joy of heart. Knowing that we have been forgiven, the curse of sin has been lifted. Thank you for saving grace. Thank you that before the throne of God, we can say with full confidence, there is now no condemnation. We come as poor spiritually, we come as fallen and sinful, but we come now before your throne with joy, knowing that we have been forgiven and transformed. May sin depart from your people as you have lifted it from us, as you have lifted us out of our guilt. May we now sing with joy before your throne in the name of Christ we come.